I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. We've been in this chapter for many weeks now. <clears throat> the time frame of this chapter is very brief. It's two days in Galilee, around the northern parts of the Sea of Galilee. We're in the second of these two days here in verses 48 through 51. We're in the synagogue in Capernaum with the crowd that had been miraculously fed the previous day by the Lord Jesus. They've been following him around, wanting to get some more food, make him a food-providing king, and they meet up here in this synagogue in Capernaum. I suppose that synagogue never buzzed with excitement like it did on this particular day. <clears throat> and we see this intense discourse and exchange between Jesus and this multitude of Jews, no doubt some of them residents of Capernaum, others among the, the pilgrims that probably had been on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they are uh, detoured here by their interaction with Jesus of Nazareth. They expressed their increasing skepticism of him in verses 41 and 42. They murmured at him, it says, because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? They say to themselves, that what he's telling us is uh, unreasonable. It defies reason. We know this man. He's telling us that he came down from heaven. We know where he came from. He came from Nazareth. We know Mary. We know Joseph. He's not some extraterrestrial. But the truth was, they didn't know him, did they? They knew a little bit about him, but they did not know his divine nature. And they did not know his virgin birth. And they did not know him in a saving way. They only knew him in a very superficial and earthly way. They did not know him in their hearts as the object of their trust and obedience. These Jews had made... A fatal mistake here. They were relying on their own reasoning. Now, the faculty of reason is a great gift from God, a great faculty. But it is not our ultimate starting point. Our own tuition and our own wisdom must be guided and governed and oriented around the wisdom of God, the revelation that he has made. 
they began with a faulty starting point, we might say. And let us make sure that we don't make the same mistake, but that rather we start with God, his wisdom, what he has revealed, his revelation, which, uh, from which we reason. And let us not reason against God's revelation. Well, in answering the Jews here in this section that began in verse 43 and goes down through verse 51, Jesus says to them, uh, especially there in verse 44, that very striking and powerful statement that no man can come to him unless the Father draws him. And that is the one that Jesus will raise up at the last day. He says, you need to be drawn by God to believe on me. That is the way to everlasting life. That's the way to to resurrection, to eternal life. And he goes on to say in verse 45, and let's pick up the reading there once again. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Our Lord speaks in these verses that we want to consider, 48 through 51, about life and death. Truly, matters of life and death. And not just earthly life and death, but eternal life and eternal death. And that in itself ought to capture our interest and keep our attention. It's a sustained emphasis here in the Lord's words in the synagogue in Capernaum on this day. So let's take these things piece by piece. He speaks in verse 48 again of the bread of life. And this is a repetition of what he'd already said back in verse 35, as you recall, I am the bread of life. He had said it in a little bit more veiled terms in verse 33, the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then in verse 35, he makes it crystal clear that he's the he that he's referring to in verse 33 is his own self. I'm the bread of life. And he says that again here in verse 48. I am the bread of life. It's the same wording as in verse 35. And why would he say it again? Why would he need to say it again? Well, the answer, 
the, usually the most obvious answer is the best one and the right one. It's because they hadn't heard him the first time. And they hadn't heard him the second time. And he says it again here the third time. I would just emphasize here the, the importance of hearing the truth again and again. The importance of the repetition of it. Is it enough to hear the gospel once? As for me, I want to hear it. I need to hear it again and again. And I never get tired of hearing it. I never get tired of telling it. Peter speaks of this in his own way in Second Peter chapter 1 when he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Peter says in so many words, I'm not telling you anything new here, but I'm reminding you of what you already have heard and what you already know. He says, I want to put you in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle, as long as, long as I'm in this human body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me, or I'm sorry, uh, I, I skipped ahead. As long as I'm in this tabernacle, I think it's necessary, he says, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, it's referring to his earthly body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. <clears throat> well, thank God for the, the repetition of truth. That's how we learn. That's how we remember. And so Jesus identifies himself here as the bread of life. And of course, earlier in the exchange in this chapter, there was reference to manna that God miraculously sent in the days of Moses for Israel to eat. Jesus, by saying, I am the bread of life, is saying in so many words, again, this manna is a type a picture, a shadow of me. He speaks figuratively. I am the bread of life. And the people are not understanding. They're not on the same track with him. And let us make sure that we understand what Jesus is saying here and that we are on the same track in our minds with him. In our natural state as sinners in Adam, we are spiritually hungry and starving and we need bread. And the spiritual bread for our spiritual hunger is the Lord Jesus Christ. In our sinful state in Adam, we are dead in our sins and we need life. And the spiritual life for our spiritual deadness is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. This is good news. That Jesus Christ is all that we need. He satisfies the hungry. He raises the dead. 
He's the bread of life. He fills and satisfies and gives and preserves eternal life. And so this is his statement about the bread of life. But he goes on in verse 49 to say something about what we might call the manna of death. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is really a striking observation here. The audience listening to Jesus, the typical Jewish people, and especially the, the most zealous ones from Galilee and up in the north, they were hung up, we might say, thinking in terms of their heritage, their lineage, their ancestry, their rich history as the special chosen people of God. <clears throat> Moses is our father. Our fathers ate manna. They said that earlier in this chapter. They had such misplaced confidence in their ancestry, in their bloodlines, in their Jewishness. And our Lord shatters that vain confidence when he says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and they're dead. Let that sink in. Woe to those who think that salvation is automatically passed down from generation to generation, conferred by birth. The truth is, the only thing conferred by birth is sin. There are no covenant children in God's economy. God has no grandchildren. He has children. By new birth and by adoption through Jesus Christ. The Lord shatters all of this vain confidence here. He says in, in, in so many words, where are your forefathers that ate manna with Moses in the wilderness? I'll tell you where they are, he says. They're dead. They're all dead. <clears throat> Perhaps Jesus' audience there were familiar with the, uh, the saying of the rabbis that the generation in the wilderness have no part in the life to come. That was what was common knowledge among the Jews themselves according to historians. And you remember the story that the Lord had told them to send in the spies to look over the land of Canaan and come back and, and bring a report. Ten of the twelve spies brought a, a bad report. Only two of them brought a good report. And so the people were discouraged. The people were afraid. And they said, we can't go. We, we can't take the land of Canaan. And so God's judgment upon them for their doubt and unbelief and fear was that all of that adult generation 
would not go into the land of Canaan and would, in fact, die in the wilderness. Let me just remind you of the wording here from Numbers chapter 14. God said, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, that would include the eating of the manna, the the eating of the the quails that God provided on uh, one occasion there, and the, the water that came out of the rock of all places for them to drink. And he said, They've tempted me now these ten times, and they've not hearkened to my voice Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. And these Jews in the synagogue in Capernaum were no doubt familiar with the revisiting of that scene in Psalm 95 that reads like this. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. They had a death sentence upon them to die in that wilderness, that desert place. And just knowing what we know of the population... And of the time frame, you do the math and you get the impression that just about all day, every day must have been filled with funerals. Jesus says, all your forefathers that enjoyed those, that miraculous manna, they all died. And oh, what a death they died. They died under the judgment of God In the wilderness. That manna did not give them spiritual life. It didn't even give physical life for very long. That generation died before they crossed over into Canaan. And they died under judgment. They died because of their unbelief. They were an unbelieving generation. And I read there in Hebrews 3 where that psalm is is quoted And we have the same thing uh, in so many words in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, uh, brethren, don't be ignorant about our forefathers. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink and so on. But he says, with many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were destroyed at the hand of God there in the wilderness. When Jesus says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. He's saying to these Jews, don't make the same mistake as your fabled ancestors. Don't make the mistake of eating the table bread that I gave you miraculously yesterday and at the same time remaining in unbelief in your own hearts and refusing to believe on me as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the bread of life. 
we learn once again that shadows and pictures and types can never save a soul. Those Jewish, that generation of Jewish people ate the manna, but they remained in unbelief. And they, as long as they lived, no doubt, they ate the Passover bread, but remained in unbelief and in their sins. And it is the same today as then. Shadows and rituals are ineffectual. They can never save. Friend, you can be baptized and remain lost. You can take the Lord's Supper and remain lost. Salvation is through Christ himself, through his person and his work. And we must have personal inward faith toward him. That is salvation. It is a false understanding that tells us to put confidence in our observance of ordinances or rituals of any kind. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. But he goes on and draws the contrast even more sharply in verse 50. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. And you cannot help but wonder if when the Lord says this, he was somehow gesturing to himself. It doesn't say that, but there's, there's a number of passages where, as you read, you think very likely that that could be. Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and so on. He uses the same uh, term in verse uh, 51. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. He's clearly referring to himself, perhaps even gesturing to himself. He says again in verse 50, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven. He'd already said that, but... He's emphasizing it here once again that he came from a realm higher than that even of the manna from which it came. He came from a higher heaven, we might say. He came from the bosom of the Father, according to what John tells us in chapter 1. And he says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven that... And this is the in order that, this is the causal that, in order that a man may eat thereof and not die. He says, I came from heaven to earth as the bread of life, as the true bread. That's the term he used back in verse 32. In in contrast to the manna, which was just a, a type and shadow of him. He's the real thing. He's what it was picturing. He's the true bread. And he says, as the true bread, I banish death. If a man eats of me, he'll not die. What a contrast with what we just saw in verse 40. Father's eating manna and died. He says, if a man eats what the manna pictured, he'll not die. He'll overcome death spiritually. He will come to have life with God. 
And he will even overcome death physically when he is raised up, when, when his earthly remains are raised up at the last day. And he'd already given that language and those terms twice over in verses 39 and 40. Manna never gave everlasting life, but Christ as the true manna, as the true bread, does in fact give everlasting life. And notice he says that this spiritual bread that he is has to be eaten. A man may eat thereof. He said, I came in order that a man may eat and not die. What is the eating of Christ as our bread of life? It's to believe on him. We've seen that already here, but it needs to be emphasized once again. Spiritual bread must be eaten spiritually. It's to believe on Christ. An old writer says, faith is the mouth and the stomach of the soul. Well, that brings us then to verse 51. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Our Lord is so patient and he goes over it. I heard someone say recently that adults need to hear something repeated four to seven times if they are to remember it permanently. Well, I think we could count somewhere between four and seven times here, certainly in John chapter 6 and just this chapter alone. Our Lord makes this plain statement, and it's a very complete statement. I am the living bread. He, he, he changes the wording here slightly. Up until now, he had said, I'm the bread of life. Here he says, I'm the living bread. That tells us something about him. It indicates his own life, his intrinsic life, his divine life. That he says he imparts to those who believe in him. You recall as recently as chapter 5 and verse 26, he speaks of having life in himself. John 5, 26, as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. He is living bread, self-sustaining, eternally self-existing as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity. We see it earlier in the Gospel of John in these terms. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And as a person believes on Christ, he comes to have Christ's life. He comes into union with him, a living union, a union of life. He, he derives life. The believer in Christ gains life from a living Savior. 
And though he died on the cross, he arose again and he lives and he lives evermore and he lives to make intercession for us. The life of Christ is, is imparted, it's, it's transferred into the believer in him. So much so that we're not condemned as again chapter 5 says in verse 24. Just listen to this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Oh, this is a great promise that if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And again, I would underscore the importance of eating. That is the 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 symbolic word for believing. Perhaps you're familiar with the passage in Hebrews chapter six that speaks of those who make a profession of faith that is a false profession. And they end up rejecting everything that they had professed. And one of the things that is said about them is that they tasted of the word of God. And surely we make this distinction and should make this distinction that that tasting is not the same as what is called eating here. In Hebrew 6, the tasting is putting it in the mouth, getting the flavor rolling it around, as we say, and then finally what? Spitting it back out. Not swallowing it down, not taking it in, not receiving life from it, but rejecting it. If you have professed faith in Christ, oh, my dear friend, make sure that you have truly taken him into your soul, that you have ingested him fully, And that you are deriving life from him. (coughs) We must appropriate him fully. Believing on him, as verse 47 says. Coming to him, as verse 44 says. These are all words that describe the same action in the soul. To eat, to come, to believe on Him. Do you feed on Christ? Is He your spiritual diet? Do you satisfy your soul in Him? Listen. A table full of food will do a hungry man no good if he refuses to eat. And how sad it is to see people starving when the table is set and there's bread in abundance and it's free for the taking. And as the hymn writer says, they'd rather starve than come. Oh, don't let that be you, my friend. 
I would also point out a couple of phrases here from verse 50 and verse 51. The way the Lord words things is, is, is wonderful. Again, verse 50 reads, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. And again, verse 51, If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Our Lord here makes it as open as language can make it. He, he says literally one or any one. <clears throat> Among his hearers, the only ones who were excluded were those who excluded themselves by their own sin and their own unbelief and their own rejection of him. He makes it open. A man, as if to say, any man, anyone who eats this bread will receive the benefit from it. But I hasten on here to the end of verse 51. This again is one of the great statements of this chapter. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And of course, this, this part of this verse sets the stage for more to follow, as we shall see. But just consider what Jesus says here. He defines the bread that he's talking about <clears throat> a bit more fully. He says more specifically here, the bread that I will give is my flesh. <clears throat> what does he mean by my flesh? Well, he means his, his incarnate human nature, his human life, his body and his human body and human spirit. It's his very self. When he said, I'm the bread of life, he's talking about his very body and soul as a man. <clears throat> on earth. <clears throat> and he says twice here in this little short portion of verse 51 that he will give it. I will give. I will give. He says. Christ gave himself. He gave up his life. Paul says to the Galatians, he loved me and gave himself for me. He says to the Ephesians, Christ loved us and hath given himself for us. Now we've seen already here in chapter 6 that in, in one sense the Father gave the Son. In another sense the Son gives himself. You say, well, which is it? Well, of course, it's both. And only an understanding of the Trinitarian nature of God <clears throat> solves the mystery for us. There is perfect harmony in the actions of the Father and the actions of the Son. And Christ is the one who here offers himself, gives himself. He's the priest and the sacrifice. He's the priest and the lamb, as it were. So, Last of all, notice here what he says. He will give his flesh for the life of the world.
here is our Lord Jesus himself teaching the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He says, I will give my flesh for the life of the world. He would give his life so that sinners might receive life. Do not let this this verse and this truth be lost on you today. Our Lord Jesus laid down his life, gave up his life, so that those who believe in him would enter into life. It's his life for theirs. The price that he would pay to secure the eternal life of his people is his own life. He gives his life for the life of the world. And I don't mean to be uh, narrowly focused here, but there's a little preposition here that's very significant. The word for. And in a context like this, it can only mean one thing. And that is on behalf of or instead of, or in place of. That's why I say, here is the Lord Jesus himself teaching us substitutionary death, substitutionary atonement. And this is the term that's used over and over again. In Holy Scripture, I just gave you two references. The one in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me in my place as my substitute. In behalf of me, Paul says. Or Ephesians 5, 2. Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. <clears throat> Think of His familiar words as recorded in Matthew chapter 20. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. And sometimes a lot of of truth hangs on a little word. And so it is in these passages of Scripture. Think again of Romans 5, 8, that God commends his love. He he puts it on exhibition toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again from the book of Galatians, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. A substitutionary suffering and becoming a curse, taking our curse in our place John says, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Beloved, this this principle of personal substitution is the very heart of the gospel. It's the good news of what Christ has done in our place, of the exchange of his taking our place and dying our death And he brings us into his place 
to enjoy eternal life. And the last word here is the word world. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You can imagine the shock that went over those Jewish people in Capernaum that day when they heard that. They expected Jesus to say, which I will give for the life of the, of the nation of Israel. But he tells them here it's not for Jews only. God's purpose of grace and Christ's substitutionary work is to save not only Jews, but Gentiles. And a great number of both groups. And to save Jews and Gentiles alike in one and the same way. And in one and the same action. And I would just close with this emphasis then. If you're a Gentile by birth, there's hope for you in Christ. I'm so glad that he said world here. It's a broad term. Yes, there, there are ways that he might have said it to be more specific But there's no doubt that he said it in this broad way for a a purpose. This, This is his intention. And what we ought to learn from it is that there's hope for anyone in Christ. There's hope for any sinner. Jew, Gentile, young, old, man, woman, boy, girl, rich, poor. There's hope in Christ. Salvation is found in him. When I read a statement like this, I I see the door is left open. The door to God's house is left open. You know, they say that uh, hyper-Calvinism is all house and no door. And Arminianism is all door and no house. But the truth of God's word, if you want to nickname it Calvinism or whatever, the truth is there's a house and a door. And the house is God's house. And the door is Christ. And he makes it very plain here that he receives any man, anyone who comes to him. And so I want to urge you to come to him now. What bread is to the body, Christ is to the soul. If you come to him and feed on him and believe on him, you'll receive this everlasting life that he promises. You will live forever. You'll be satisfied forever. Your hunger will be satisfied. and you'll, Your soul will be filled. And in like manner, if you don't come to him and believe on him and feed on him and, and trust him, you will die. And you'll die forever. And you'll be hungry. 
and you'll be hungry forever. There will be a spiritual hunger pain in your soul forever. And so you must come and eat and feed and believe and come now. And if you are a believer in Christ and you do feed on Him, you know the joy of eating again and again and again. Every day you feed on Him. It it is like the manna. It came every day and the people gathered it and ate of it every day. And thank God there were some who were believers. We know of two by name. Caleb and Joshua, they ate the manna and they got to enter into the land of promise after all because they believed God and they believed his word. And so, Christian friend, let us never forget that the spiritual life that we enjoy with God is ours only because the Son of God gave up His life. It is truly life by His death, as some writers have put it. And let us be thankful, let us rejoice, and let us renew our faith in Him today.